0: From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi again, everyone. I'm your host, Andy Vandenbush. Today, we embark on another episode of Law Adjacent, where I sit down with JD grads who are doing work outside of the law firm, courtroom, and in-house positions. In this episode, I get a chance to sit down with the Executive Director of the Office of Equity and Compliance and Title IX Coordinator for Loyola University, Chicago, Tim Love. Tim, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time out of your admittedly beauty beautiful day in Chicago. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, just kind of giving us a little bit of an introduction about you, your background, who you are, things
1: like that. Sure. Um, so my name is Tim Love. I work right now as Loyola University Chicago's Executive Director for Equity and Compliance and the university's Title IX Coordinator. Um, I've been at Loyola professionally for uh, about 15 years now. I started in 2008, but before that, I also was a student here. I graduated from my undergraduate degree uh, with my undergraduate degree at Loyola in 2003, um, and then I later, when I was working here, I also am a graduate of the law school. So I uh, I finished my law degree in 2013 while I was. Uh, working at the university as well in the night and evening program. And, oh, so
0: you were you were before the days of of the weekend program?
1: That's correct. Yep, yeah. I used to go to night classes uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Saturday mornings as well. Uh, it was it was a lot, but we got through it.
0: I and and you know it's it's funny because I am a weekend student, so uh, like so I do appreciate the idea of working, and then also doing law school at the same time. But to be incredibly honest, I don't know if I could handle working and then going to school at night. Like, I still feel like just even doing this, like every other weekend thing can be can be a lot. So I can't, I can't imagine, can't imagine.
1: And going in person as well. Yeah, everything was in person. So yeah, but you know, it's all good. Um, (laughs) I'm glad the university has has, uh, and the school has, has evolved the program over time. But but it was still a great experience for me.
0: Right, right. Um, thank you for that. Um, my first question is, and I think it's it's kind of a nice dovetail in, into what you kind of shared uh, just now, but um, so you're a rambler through and through, like just from undergrad to, to law school. I guess my question too is like, what was the thing that brought you to law school? And what brought what was the thing that brought you to
1: the law? Sure. Um, so actually, in the in between time between two thousand and three and two thousand and eight, while I was gone from Loyola, and even then i I actually wasn't because my my first job after I graduated uh, in two thousand three was to go and work at the Rome Center campus. So I was even working at Loyola then. but that doesn't really count because that was like, That was like a a great introductory job, but it was more fun than anything um, for a year out at the Rome Center as what was called at the time, a student life assistant, which isn't a job that they have anymore. Um, But in any case, um, after that experience, I did some volunteer work with um, Jesuit uh, Jesuit Volunteer Corps, Jesuit Volunteers International. I taught high school uh, abroad in the Federated States of Micronesia. I was very much on a journey of trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up. Still, um, I had majored in Italian and international studies at Loyola, and um, my uh, my interests were always I was always really just big on education, and I loved I loved school, and I loved my college experience, but I wasn't really sure how to plug it in. So I thought about. You know, working at Loyola, I worked at the Rome Center, like I mentioned. Then I I tried teaching through this volunteer program to see what teaching was like. I was also exploring whether or not I might be interested in in joining the Jesuits at the time, which is crazy for me to think about now, but that was on my mind at the time. Um and um after that experience, I, I came back to the United States and needed a place to land. And I I ended up at Uh, randomly working at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, which is near to where my family lives in San Antonio. And so it was uh, a job that I was wholly unqualified for at the time. Uh, I was a coordinator of risk management for the Greek system, for fraternities and sororities. And I mean, I I had been interested in working in, in the university environment um, I wanted, I was I was intrigued by non-faculty, kind of the more administrative jobs that were student-facing, student support jobs. I didn't know at the time that there was a whole career path for student called student affairs that you could pursue. Um, but I kind of lucked my way into this job uh, and loved it, um, loved it so much that I uh you know, in talking with a, a then mentor at, at that school, um, realized I, I could and probably should uh, go get more education so I could do that job better. Um, and so I was introduced to the Student Affairs and Higher Education program at Colorado State University, uh, which I took and I got my master's in student affairs and higher education in 2008. While I was at Colorado State, studying I was also uh, working in the residence kind of like a residence life program they call it apartment life it was for graduate students and it had a very big focus on international students um, so it was really international intercultural intergenerational community of, of residents who lived in the specific kind of housing that they offer at Colorado State it was a great experience Um, And I got a chance over two years to kind of dabble in all the different areas of student affairs. So I was looking at, you know, activities and um, uh, residence life, uh, student advising, academic advising, um, you know, campus recreation, like all all the international stuff, study abroad stuff. In my second year of my graduate program, I took a class called uh, higher education, uh, legal aspects of higher education. And that was the class that blew my mind. I mean, the higher ed program was great. I, I really loved, you know, everything about my experience at Colorado State. It was a tremendous experience. Learned a lot about myself. Learned about a lot about broadening my my view of what the college experience looks like through different lenses and different identities, and um, just by, behind the scenes about how an institution is run. But it was that legal class that really, uh, really turned me on to kind of the the high stakes sort of legal dimension of running a university, all the risk involved, the, the base, very basics, it was like an intro survey course to law. So I learned a little bit about contracts, a little bit about torts, a little bit about uh, constitutional law and civil rights law and things like that. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it was fascinating and really academically challenging. So I and I had over time realized that I think the area for me in in working as an university administrator was going to be not with you know the helping students kind of host concerts or programs and not kind of in some of the other university offerings residential experiences et cetera but rather in the realm of when students are in crisis or when students are. In a disciplinary situation and the stakes are high and they're going through a dark period where either they've made a mistake or they've experienced something at someone else's hand that has caused them harm or they're struggling and they're still trying to achieve their educational goals but they're trying to do so with this new added barrier of whatever it is that happened to them or that they did to themselves. and you know that had a, has an element of safety in it. It has an element of support. Um, it has an element of understanding what the university's legal and ethical obligations should look like for all of our students. Uh, and that just felt like something that that called me. Uh, it was an area th- uh, that I was most intrigued by. So, um, following my my master's experience, I got. The, I had the great opportunity. I moved back to Chicago um, for a relationship at the time. It would later become my my current wife and partner. Um, but I moved back uh, to. I knew I wanted to be in the Chicago area. Um, I, you know, connected with some old contacts at Loyola, and there was a particular position that was interesting to me in the student conduct office. Uh, they wanted to create a restorative justice program to complement the existing sort of basic conduct stuff. At the time, the office was actually called the Office of Student Judicial Affairs. If That gives you a sense of kind of how times have changed. So I, um, I was fortunate to be able to land that job, but I came back to Loyola initially to go to law school to build on that one class that I took when I was in a master's program. And I wanted to you know, do my law program. So I had I, gotten in to Loyola uh, to attend. And I moved here with the plan of attending at Loyola and maybe getting a part-time job in the university somewhere. As it turns out, I, I lucked into this unique opportunity to, to start working full-time for the conduct office um, and to offer some of what I had learned at Colorado State, where they have a very robust restorative justice program that was very much sort of up and coming and cutting edge at the time. So, um, I was able to bring that to Loyola, and I ended up deferring my admission to law school for a year because I didn't feel like it would be fair to try and do both a new job and law school in the evening all at the at the same time. I wanted to be able to get my feet under me first. So, um, so I started working in the conduct office. We made a lot of changes. Uh, I got myself established as an employee at Loyola, and as soon as I could, the next year in twenty. Uh, 2009, I started law school um, with the goal. And, and I wasn't sure, uh, honestly, I wasn't sure when I went into law school, whether I would come out and want to be a lawyer and, and practice law in an area like higher education law, maybe working for a, a firm or or as inside counsel or something like that, where I would use my educational background and my Student affairs background um, to apply it to the practice of law, or if I would kind of do it the other way around, where I would continue as an administrator, but then use and apply my legal education to the administration work. Um, it took, you know, as I went through four years of law school, uh, and then even a few years after, I was still exploring that question. Uh, but ultimately, I've uh, I've pretty well settled on the fact that I am I am a student affairs administrator at heart I'm a university administrator at heart. I really uh, feel very honored to have the role that I do and to be able to walk with students through some of the darkest experiences that they encounter. Um, and I feel like the university environment offers uh flexibility that the and, and kind of a, yeah flexibility and collaboration in a way that the, legal systems uh, don't always offer. They can be somewhat inflexible and are always adversarial. Um, and so, you know, the, the environment of working in, in as an administrator and applying that legal education, though, to help me make sure that I'm doing the institution right and, and doing right by the students as well, um, that uh, has gone a long way. Um, so it, it feels like a good fit where I am now.
0: That's a story. That's great. Education is like your through line. And that's my, that's my through line. I was, um, so I really do. I understand it and I get it. And I also understand that idea of like wanting to better yourself and also better the community around you by, by helping people who are experiencing that crisis. And there were a couple of things that actually really stuck out to me too was this idea that getting an intro to law course was the thing that, that, piqued your interest into how can I use this to help me get where I need to go and I kind of wish that we had that now as as like a survey course of like before you get started this is what you have in front of you but instead we we jump right in.
1: Um, Yeah I will say we you know ironically I've had the good fortune to have the opportunity to uh, to teach that same kind of course in the higher education program at Loyola. So I've taught it in past years. I'll be teaching it uh, this summer for the first time in in an asynchronous way, but for the School of Education. And then I've also taught a similar version of that course, which is kind of a survey course of higher education law the context of how all those different laws that you take a full class on in, in law school, but how do each of them, we spend about a week on kind of each one's application in the unique context of higher education administration and in uh, that world. Cause higher ed law is kind of like a, a little mini world of law. It's just a, you know, it's, it's got, it's got elements of, you know, think about it. It's got intellectual property from, from, from faculty and the research that they do. It's got uh student, disciplinary stuff that can be quasi criminal in in nature there's due process there's constitutional law um there's contracts there's torts and negligence and you know so all of that has an application in the world of higher education administration and you know that's that's kind of what what blew my mind when i was i was coming at it from from an administrator standpoint but i think it's fun to explore kind of all the areas of the law in this kind of one unique kind of ecosystem of higher education.
0: And that's interesting too, because I would almost argue that there are a lot of people that go into law school being like, this is what my family has done. This is, this is like in my blood. We just, we're, we're supposed to be lawyers or, or whatever it is. And it's when you have that experience, the experience is, oh, my father is a personal injury lawyer. So I understand the way that torts work. But then, you know, that framing makes you almost put your blinders up to like the fact that there's an intersectionality of it all. I totally see that. Back to your role within um, Loyola and with the Office of Equity and Compliance, would you be able to give some sort of like short, or it doesn't even need to be short, but some sort of like elevator pitch or explanation of like, What's the work and the mission of what happens in the Office of, of Equity and Compliance?
1: Sure. Um, so I think most students these days realize that there's a thing called Title IX. And Title IX, um, it's often mis- misunderstood and miscited. But Title IX is actually a federal law that prohibits discrimination based on sex in educational programs and programs that receive uh that that are educational in nature and receive federal financial uh, assistance like pretty much every university in the country almost um, and you know uh all school districts and K through 12 as well as higher education uh, and it basically says that institutions in spending federal dollars on educational programs can't do so in a discriminatory way based on sex um it's a simple <laughs> Thirty-seven words. It's a simple, uh, uh, short uh, uh, law or, or sort of, you know, code. Or, um, but it is uh, very complicated in, in its application because that application touches everything from equity and funding in athletics to what, you know, most recently has had the most attention on Title IX, which is what are universities' obligations with respect to prevention, education, and response. To sexual violence and gender-based misconduct, stuff like sexual harassment, stalking, dating violence, domestic violence, sexual assault. Um, So our office's uh, charge is to coordinate the university's response to reports and complaints uh, of anything that's related to either Title IX or other related equity laws like Title VI, which is very similar to Title IX, but prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin. Um, uh, We oversee the response to reports of discrimination based on other protected classes as well. So disability discrimination, age discrimination, uh, religious discrimination, Military veteran status, pregnant parenting status—you know—the the list goes on. All of the all of the protected classes that are recognized in the state of Illinois, um, those the 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 university's obligations to make sure that we're running basically a non-discriminatory uh, operation here. That that's what our primary responsibility is, and so that involves a lot of the focus is on response. So we get reports and complaints. And that's our bread and butter, if you will. We we want to always encourage people to bring things forward to the university because anytime they do, that gives us an opportunity to look into the situation, to figure out if there's some responsive intervention that needs to happen, if there's some sort of disciplinary intervention that needs to happen or anything else. And I should mention this scope goes across student staff and faculty issues. So we don't just address student on student matters, but faculty on faculty, faculty on administrator staff on staff, student on staff, every other combination you can think of so that's what that's what we do. Uh, we partner with with uh, a lot of campus partners to do this work it's kind of like Dei work uh in in general uh, I mean it, it is a, a part of Dei work overall, um, but similar to Dei work in the sense that it is you know to really uh, have a campus culture that is non-discriminatory in all of its aspects and where the response to any kind of issue of discrimination that does come up is robust and thorough and compliant and aligned with our mission and our obligations under the law. To do that effectively requires a lot of partnership and collaboration. You know, our office doesn't do it alone. We rely on lots of other partner offices, uh, everything from the student conduct office who does hearings and makes sanctioning decisions uh, for students to our human resources office, which addresses, you know, has a big hand to play in in staff matters and staff discipline issues to the office of the provost, which is really instrumental in addressing faculty uh, issues and concerns. So as well as like other offices, you can imagine campus safety, the wellness center um, uh, athletics, uh, you know, our, our work kind of, we have we have a coordinating role, um, but the implementation of all of this work, the training, the prevention stuff, uh, all the response stuff that that all is a it's a community effort.
0: That actually leads me to kind of where my brain is going with that. That ensuring equity, ensuring compliance with the law, like those two words coming together in one in one way, but also I guess kind of touched on in what you just said was. In addition to addressing these violations of these titles, is there a way that the Office of Equity and Compliance also works to kind of be proactive and work on preventative measures or like, is there an education component to how we operate within this institution to prevent these things from happening so we don't have to run into an investigation or we don't run into any violations?
1: Yes, it's a it's a great question and very astute absolutely uh, both are crucial. you know frankly speaking when we when we first created this office uh, which was in 2019, it was in it was based on a uh, an internal audit that had been done with some such some consulting sort of internal stuff. there was no like big scandal or anything or no big lawsuit that prompted the creation of this office which sometimes happens. Um, but internally, upon review of of different cases and things that have been reported to the institution and what were what was the institution doing with those uh matters there was a, a recognition that we could improve the efficiency and the and the consistency with which we're kind of addressing and 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 turning over reports by it, by centralizing the function into one area um previously it's not that the work wasn't being done but if it was a student matter it was handled in student affairs If it was a staff matter, just to give you an example, it was handled in human resources and never did the two, you know, very rarely did the two ever kind of uh, work together or collaborate or share training uh, information or protocols or templates or whatever. So the input was and the, and the motivation was around response to reports, responding to reports, responding to complaints. And so we launched the office in 2019. Um, it was a it was a an initiative that was that was led and sponsored by the previous president, Dr. Rooney. Um, so we sort of talked about it in 2018, stood it up officially, and I took on this new role in 2019. Spent the better part of that year sort of building the office, hiring staff. Uh, getting a physical office location. We worked out of closets for uh, for a year, not not exaggerating. it was it was kind of strange. Um, but you know we we came together and, and our first goal was building a, a policy framework that would sort of capture all of these different equity-based laws and obligations, meet or exceed those minimum federal standards as well as state level standards for what our response needed to look like. But then also plug together the pre-existing policies so things like the faculty handbook uh, and the student code of conduct which is called the community standards so we had to we had to figure out how to kind of weave together all of these policy disparate policies into one comprehensive policy that would be kind of our guiding framework for responding to reports how are we going to do reports we also created a new database to uh, centrally receive and track all of those cases in one place. Uh, so, previously, again, it was sort of disparate um, in different places, uh, depending on if it was a student or an employee matter. We're still creating an office. We're still learning as an office and, and growing in terms of what our kind of scope and appropriate mission and scope should be. Uh, I will say it's unquestionable that there needs to be prevention and education as part of the overall mission of this office. Uh, And we do use, we do sort of coordinate that. Uh, We currently rely, as we did before the office existed, we rely on a lot of campus partners to help us with those efforts because we have limited staff, et cetera. Um, But we do things like make sure that there is an annual training for all employees about sexual harassment prevention. Um, Make sure that we're we're offering regular. professional development opportunities for faculty and for staff to learn about the reporting process, to learn about what role they can play in supporting a student or a colleague for that matter who's who's looking for help or is in crisis or experiences, you know, gender-based violence or discrimination and, and reports it to them, you know, how do you make sure that you're appropriately handling that in a trauma-informed way? Um, And how are we communicating about the university's expectations around these topics proactively, kind of to your point. So we give presentations at orientation for new incoming students. Um, We give presentations to new incoming faculty as well. Uh, We've woven in our content into existing uh, protocols for like new staff onboarding so every staff member who starts at Loyola gets a, a little bit of information about our office and how we can be of service to them if some situation arises um are the main office that does that does student prevention work like violence prevention work as well as other kind of inclusive stuff but they really focus on the on the sexual misconduct piece that's the office of health promotion which is a subset it's within the wellness center so they have a small staff of of folks who who focus exclusively on prevention and health education they come at it from a from a public health you know standpoint uh, uh they deliver trainings like every week, all year long to students, both, you know, small groups, larger programs, stuff online, uh, big stuff. They also coordinate the administration of a training that every incoming Loyola student has to take um, about sexual violence prevention, et cetera. Um, And then, so that's like, a big part of what the, the student side does. There's also, of course, a lot of programming that happens in the undergraduate arena out of student affairs for just students in general from residence life and other programs, stuff like that. On the staff side, HR also has a lot of sort of training available for staff, faculty, etc. about how to navigate situations, what are the expectations and all of that. Um, So we have bystander training, we have other components. So there, I mean, the list goes on about the the prevention and education pieces that are in place at the university. Um, And I didn't even mention all the great work that's being done right now from the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity and Inclusion to promote a culture of belonging just across the board for all employees and all students as well. So there's a lot of work happening. Our job, again, is to sort of make sure that that work is sort of happening and to identify where there might be um, gaps or where there might be an area where we're seeing a lot of reports coming in that might indicate a challenge. Um, You know, just hypothetically, if we were to this year, say, receive, you know, a bunch of reports from a particular college about, let's say, like, students in that college expressing that they didn't feel that their disability rights were being upheld or they weren't being treated fairly because of their their uh, their disability status or because of their uh, gender identity or what have you. We would see those trends Now that we're collecting the information centrally, We look at those trends every year, we report them up to senior leadership, we even report them all the way up to the board of trustees uh, on a quarterly basis. So there's a lot of sort of institutional awareness about what's the frequency with which these issues are arising. And then the goal is that we're targeting our our prevention efforts or our, you know, we're tailoring our limited resources so that we can deploy them in the places where they're most gonna have an impact and a benefit. the prevention stuff is out there. We we know and appreciate our campus partners are doing that work. Our job is to identify where there are gaps in that work and then to try and uplift or sort of juice up the resources that go to the places as indicated by the data. That actually clears up a lot of it because it it shows how
0: cross-disciplinary and 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 collaborative it has to be because you can't just work on. One one person cannot solve or one group or one department cannot solve all of the problems themselves. That makes sense to have a central place to get all that information from and then and then use that information to inform everybody else.
1: Yeah, I but think I, you know, in, institutions have different philosophical approaches to how this work should be done. Um, there are schools that have a prevention education sort of subunit within the Title IX office, so to speak. There are institutions that that have a separate sort of prevention or education branch that focuses on just gender-based violence, but doesn't focus on uh, discrimination or other protected classes. I actually really support Loyola's sort of philosophy on this. I mean, we're not perfect by any means, but I think that the The spirit of collaboration and realizing that in order for this work to be done effectively, it has to be a, a we all have a role to play in it. Um, that's the message we keep hearing from leadership. Um, that's the message that you know that deans hear. They they hear the message from the president that you you know you might think Title IX. Oh, there's an office over there that does that. That's the OEC's you know issue. But you also have a role because the way you respond to issues and reports, the way your faculty are out there, uh, including information in their syllabi or, you know, uh, being ready to to receive uh, student stories with care and compassion and concern and and know where to route them to make sure they get the support that they deserve. That goes a long way towards establishing a culture that's truly kind of uh, that we all buy into and we all have a role in. So I, I think that that Sort of we have a central coordinating role, but a diffused responsibility for execution and uh that to me makes the most sense. I think it's the best of both worlds. I think that also
0: that brings up an idea like a thought to me about laws and we think about regulations and we think about them as box checkers and you know like well, I put in the title nine statement in my syllabus, I put the i I gave the annual compliance training, we sent out the thing, but In order to make it so it is usable and tangible, we have to think about the human component of it. And so I guess that was, that leads me to my question, which is again, something you touched on was this idea of there's a humanity to it. And so like even you said, um, you know, hearing, listening to student stories or listening to staff stories and being able to hear that and, and take it in with compassion while also recognizing how do we address the problem that's there, um, would you mind kind of talking a little bit about that process and how that that works?
1: Um sure. I, I guess I'll say first and foremost, we have an office philosophy that I think extends to the larger university as well where people are in the middle of everything they're they're at the center we talk we have lots of Jesuit buzzwords about cura personalis and things like that. But setting aside the, the buzzwords, the spirit is very, very intentional and very real in that the way that our office addresses each and every case that we are notified of, it begins and ends with the people who are involved. Um, Of course, we uh, we want to be compassionate and sensitive to the highly charged highly emotional highly deeply hurtful experiences that that victims and survivors and what we call affected parties as like a general category if we're talking about discrimination and other things people who are affected by the misconduct who are harmed by the misconduct um they're obviously going through uh what they're going through, right? The the hurt, and that can be like life changing, huge, huge trauma, capital T. And they deserve to know that their university is here, that we offer resources, that we offer support. Uh, that support comes uh, for free uh, upon request, and there's a big long menu of the support that's available, always custom and tailored to the to the needs uh, and expressed you know desires of the of the affected party that includes but is not limited to you know one part of the response could be engaging a, a disciplinary process or following up on a formal complaint and doing an investigation and all of that for many of the students we work with that's not what they're interested in they they want support they want care uh, they want to focus on their healing etc Uh, But they don't want to get embroiled in a long administrative process. They're just not interested in in doing that. And we respect that that right um, for them to decide and use their agency as they see fit. Um, Of course, we empower them and and make sure that they know that I should say that they are empowered to if they want to file a police report or, you know, take other action. It's all available for them with support. Um, but it's not pressured on them at all because we know from research and survivor-based uh, you know, trauma-informed practices that that empowering folks and making sure that their agency is respected is, is among the most crucial things you can do when you're trying to be supportive of, of a survivor or a person who's experienced harm and trauma. Um, at the same time, when a person does want to engage a disciplinary process against another individual, we owe that other individual we need to center them as well. Um, and, and we owe them a uh, due process, an impartial process, a process that is very much required by the law. Uh, Title IX, as well as, you know, other laws require very specific, uh, explicit, very sometimes like hyper kind of minutiae um, uh, procedures to be followed to make sure that the those individuals are, that there's no prejudice, there's no uh, jumping to conclusions uh, and starting to treat people uh, as if they are, uh, you know, have been found guilty or found what we call responsible before they've actually had due process and the opportunity to, you know, share their perspective and look at the evidence and all of that. So, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, I think our, our process is, it, by definition, it is an equitable process. It balances the unique needs of a survivor an affected party along with the unique and somewhat different. They're similar and they overlap, but they're also somewhat different needs of a respondent, someone who's been accused of of misconduct, but both of them are humans. Both of them deserve dignity and respect and a process that hears them. And at the end of the day, in like a hundred out of a hundred of our cases, there's not going to be both parties are not going to be satisfied at the outcome um, because they are, by definition, they are kind of adversarial. It's, it's we try to make it non adversarial and keep it as administrative and collaborative as process as possible. But you can't have a collaborative process between a person who's been accused of sexual assault and a person who has experienced sexual assault. Of course not. Uh, both parties are going to have very strong feelings about whatever the outcome is of that case. And our obligation under the law and our moral obligation is to make sure that that process is fair, that it is based on evidence, that it is not biased, that there's not a conflict of interest or some other inappropriate influence that's determining the outcome, and that whatever the outcome is, we can back it up with a, a solid rationale that's communicated uh, clearly and in an in accessible way to the parties. So that we can help them understand why we came to the conclusion and so that they can, if they don't accept it, they can utilize the process for an appeal and make sure that they're, you know, they exhaust all of the available kind of uh, internal uh, processes that are available to them. So, again, we can't judge our success based on any outcome of any case, uh, because we have to look at the merits of the case itself. Um, It's not that we're trying to build a case against people like a prosecutor would, uh, and we're not trying to defend a a person like a a defense attorney would. We are kind of more like a judge, you know, who's sitting in the middle, uh, hearing the evidence, and, and, but we're also the investigators, because we're also the detectives. So we have to do the investigation, do our due diligence, alleviate the burden on the students or the parties, collect it as thoroughly and professionally and promptly as we possibly can, although those different things are sometimes in conflict with each other, right? Promptness versus thoroughness, for example. And then uh, use our professional uh, expertise to apply the policy in a fair and consistent way um, that's based on evidence and based uh, meets the merits of uh, you know the requirements of the law. And at the same time, while we're doing all that, I mean we know that the emotional toll on the parties who are going through these processes is tremendous. Uh, it can't be overstated. So w- we know our job. we try to explain that job as clearly as we can so that we can manage people's expectations. Uh, one common misunderstanding or it, and it's not even a misunderstanding. I think folks know it in their brain, but it feels, hard to accept in your heart um, is that even if in a case where we might not find a person responsible, we may find that a, an accused individual is not responsible, maybe because of the lack of evidence or uh, you know the, the technical application of a policy, that doesn't mean that we're not saying that or saying that something didn't happen uh, or that the the harm or the hurt that someone experienced isn't real or valid or legitimate. Uh, and we try and communicate that as, as, as repeatedly and carefully as we can, but inevitably we're human beings and people who are going through this kind of a process who have been hurt in, in the manner, especially with gender-based violence, but also at times with discriminatory harassment, bullying, other things like that, we know that when a school finds that a person is not responsible, that's a hard pill to swallow for, for a, a, a person who's, um, who's brought a case um, so we try we, we know there's always going to be a natural limit to how much somebody can can hear any kind of message of compassion or care from from us, given the unique role that we're in, especially when delivering kind of hard or, or, or unwanted news. Um, so the best we can do in those circumstances, again, is try and be as clear and transparent from the beginning about what we do do our our level best to to be as professional and diligent and thorough as we could uh, you know with gold gold standard quality uh investigations and and impartial processes that we you know follow consistently uh be as sensitive and and compassionate as we can using trauma-informed practices when we're talking with people when we're doing interviews things like that but also part of it is knowing the limits of our role and and relying on others at the at the university to provide other support. So we have advocacy services. We have the office of the dean of students. We have support for both respondents and uh, victims and survivors uh, to make sure that they can get support from people who are not us, because we know at at some point, you know, people are just they're gonna. Uh, we have a, a certain role to to play and they may feel more comfortable uh, getting support uh, elsewhere. So that's why, again, we have like a really strong partnership with our Office of the Dean of Students so that we can be the neutral arbiter role that that kind of facilitates a process. And for the record, we're not even always the, the folks making the decision of responsible or not responsible, but we are facilitating the process, right? So we're facilitating that process, in a way that we have to, in a way that we can do our absolute best to make sure it's it's compliant with the law. It's also informed by our mission and consistent with our mission and our values. When per a person is looking for advocacy services or other care and support, we want to make sure that they get connected with the other available resources, uh, whether inside the university or outside the university at times to, to try and promote as much, as much, you know, healing and 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 success as, as we can the the student affairs person in me again this is why i do this work and this and this is consistent across everybody in my staff even though i have lawyers on staff we have another student affairs person we have a paralegal uh, we have a variety of different kind of professional uh, there's a lot of avenues to get to title IX work um and 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 equity work in 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 colleges and, and our staff is reflective of that diversity of sort of professional expertise or whatnot but one thing we all share in common is a very strong commitment against any of these crimes occurring in our community right we're not agnostic on the question of like do we or do we not you know accept sexual misconduct in our community absolutely not or discrimination of any kind in our community absolutely not and our whole professional commitment is to stamp it out when we find it but we also have to adhere to, the regulatory uh, requirements to follow a process that relies on evidence and relies on cause um, before we then take steps, the extraordinary steps of removing people from our community, as we often do, uh, whether through expulsion, suspension, or termination of an employee. We're talking about removing that person's right as well. We need to make sure that we have a strong process uh, in place, and we want that process to be as compassionate as possible, but we also don't want folks to let's put it this way, we want it to be as compassionate as possible. We also know that it's only going to ever feel like an administrative process to a certain extent, because it is. Um, And it's hard for people to go through these processes. And that's there's nothing we can do to avoid it being a hard and uncomfortable and taxing experience, which is why going back to your earlier question, prevention and education is actually so very important uh, to us as an institution.
0: What I was going to say was I just have so much I want to follow up on and we don't have the time to do it because um, I, I you know I think one of the things that we often forget, and I think this is exactly the point that you're making is that when we look at administrative tasks and we look at administrative services, they are very stuffy or we think that they're stuffy. And we think that there's, there's no personality attached to it. We believe that, you know, it's just the system running, it's spinning its cogs and and things are moving the way that it's intended to, but there's, there's so much more to that. And so I, yeah, I could just keep, I could keep going on that one. But I think uh, one question I do want to ask you before we, before we cut is, um, how in your day do you still attach yourself to the legal studies that you that you learned i mean you you talk a lot about providing due process you talk a lot about doing doing the research and doing doing things that way um like what other legal skills are you using in your day and and your team using every day
1: sure yeah i i think um well i'll say there's a lot of writing involved in this job um from policy writing and amending to uh, the written work that our investigators do i don't actually conduct investigations nor do i uh, facilitate hearings because i'm not not able to as a title IX coordinator i have to be kind of outside of those specific processes um but our our investigators uh some of whom are attorneys are using their writing skills uh, a lot. You know, some of our investigative reports they'll they'll be two hundred pages plus in length, um, and that's, you know, it's not all that that includes appendices and transcripts of interviews and whatever. But it's a very very uh, formal process, and it and it, it that's what the law requires these days. And so that requires a high attention to detail and understanding that like words, uh, word choice really matters. And it's very important, the distinction between can and and should or may or must and things like that. So um, and, the, and the ability to to reason and write your rationale, uh, your analysis. I mean, we follow an IRAC like basic model, if that sort of tells you anything. I mean, that's straight out of legal writing. But then aside, you know, again, policy writing. Uh, review of policies. Uh, we also have, you know, anytime there's a, a statutory legislative development that happens that might impact our work, we need to analyze it and review it. Uh, we do not, you know, we don't serve. I'm not a attorney for the university. Um, I have there's general counsel that does that. I do not represent the university in a legal capacity, but sh- certainly every bit of the work that I do is kind of quasi legal in nature. Uh, it all, every single case that comes in could develop into a lawsuit uh, initiated by either a respondent or a complainant. Um, and we've had both. Um, so um, knowing that every case that we get is um, is like, you know, nuclear uh, or has a has the potential to have implications both legal and reputational. And human, you know, for all the parties involved, the institution and the students, of course, uh, or the faculty or staff, you know, we're talking about things that uh, sometimes touch on employment law. Um, We have unions at the institution. So uh, sometimes an issue might be raised against a person who's a member of a union. And in those circumstances, we have to be aware about, you know, Weingarten rights and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, having the, the law in the back of, of my mind uh, and really kind of the front or middle of my mind at all times is I think it's essential for someone to be successful in a role like this at any institution. Um, it is a required sort of uh, element of my, you know, my job description or is a JD required kind of position. Uh, That's not the case at all institutions, but I really would question how a person without some significant legal training would be able to responsibly navigate the responsibilities of the job uh, on behalf of the school that they're serving at. Um, We have issues where, you know, let's just give an example, like hypothetically, we have a trans student in a class who uh, and a faculty member who refuses to uh, uh, address that trans student by their chosen modes of address. Um, there you've got a conflict of civil rights and the application of potentially Title IX um, and or state law. With free speech rights of a faculty member in an academic, you know, freedom context, etc. cetera, you might have religious freedom thrown in there uh, to to be part of that uh, mix. Those are complex uh, scenarios where there are people involved and there are also laws involved, um, and we have an obligation and an op- opportunity in our work to address those issues internally within the university in a more expedient way, in a way that's caring and sensitive without making people have to resort to the available legal processes outside of the university. Um, So we see our office sometimes as like the court of last resort within the institution before people have to go elsewhere to try and seek the resolution or the remedy that they're looking for. And Um, You know, having that awareness and knowing down the road, what would the, you know, the Illinois uh, Department of Human Rights have to say about this situation? How would they view this situation? What are the precedents in the Seventh Circuit, um, you know, for cases like this? I mean, all of that is part of, is part of our job. We're always looking at and monitoring case uh, court decisions in our, in our jurisdiction, evolving laws. Uh, city ordinances, like all, all of it can have an impact on on how we uh, how we do this work uh, for Loyola.
0: Intersectionalism is the thing that just keeps popping up with with all of this. But thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I I really enjoyed this conversation. I had I had a good time. So uh, thanks, Tim.
1: Me too. Thank you for for the space. I I don't often get the opportunity to kind of unpack uh, a little bit more than uh, than the the very basics, uh, the very quick elevator speech of, of what our work looks like. Um, but I'm very proud of the work that happens out of this office and out of this university. I wouldn't work here if I didn't believe that this was a school where we do this work with a, a strong degree of integrity and and professionalism. And I've never in 15 years of working here, I've never encountered a situation where I felt like this school was trying to pressure a, a certain decision to go a certain way or something like that uh, which is really it's not a freedom that everyone who works in this field has. Um, so anyway, I'm proud of proud of the work proud of being able to do it at, and, and honored to be able to do it at Loyola. I hope this is helpful to some of the law students out there who might be thinking about how to, um, apply their legal education in non-traditional ways because there's lots of uh, cool opportunities to be of, of service and really put that put that knowledge set to use in a way that can really help uh, help society outside of the, the formal sort of standard legal processes. So anyway,
0: And that's it from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.